River Basin, and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard highlights July's supermoon in his Star Talk report. Christine San Jose honors moon-inspired writings in her narration along the poet's row. And in the segment Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips finalizes her conversation with naturalist Marty Borco. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, here on Radio Catskill. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Ukrainian forces are battling Russia along several fronts, mainly in the east but farther north. In Kharkiv, several people are injured after a missile struck a residential building. Meantime, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has told his Chinese counterpart the U.S. is concerned about Beijing's support for Russia. NPR's John Ruich reports they spoke after the G20 meeting in Bali. China says it hasn't taken sides in the war in Ukraine, and it has called for all parties to exercise restraint. But Blinken said China's words and actions, in fact, have not been neutral. He said China has shielded Russia in international organizations, amplified Russian propaganda, and even continued to conduct joint military exercises. He said Beijing is shirking its responsibilities as a permanent member of the UN Security Council. And he said he expressed deep concern about China's alignment with Russia. The over-five-hour face-to-face meeting was the first between Blinken and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi in months, and it comes with U.S.-China relations still hobbled by a range of disagreements. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. In Sri Lanka, Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe says he will resign to make way for an all-party government. Protesters angry about the country's economic crisis came out in force. And today, they breached the president's home in Colombo. He fled before people stormed his bedrooms and bathrooms, even splashing around his pool. President Biden has signed an executive order taking limited steps to preserve abortion access, including plans to set up mobile clinics near the borders of states with restrictions. Vice President Kamala Harris met with Democratic lawmakers from such states and encouraged them to keep fighting for reproductive rights. It goes without saying that I think we share a belief that women should be able to make decisions about their own bodies without interference from their government. Lawmakers from Montana were at the meeting. That's where Republican leaders are seeking to end abortion rights. Now Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports more people in the state are looking to get sterilized. While abortion access is currently protected by Montana's Constitution, State Attorney General Austin Knudsen has asked the state Supreme Court to throw out that protection, fearing the possibility that contraception access will eventually be restricted. 23-year-old Alex Wright is asking her provider about getting sterilized because she never wants children. So if I can get it done now before it's something that becomes difficult, I would like to do that. 
Kavita Aurora with the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says providers across the country are seeing an increase in people seeking out permanent forms of birth control. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Columbia Falls, Montana. It's NPR News. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, Christine San Jose honors moon-inspired writings in her narration along the poet's row. Stephanie Phillips finalizes her conversation with naturalist Marty Borco. In the segment Now You Know, we'll hear about viewing the biota while hiking in the Bashakil Wetlands area. But first, here is Keith Hubbard's Star Talk report. Stand by for July's Super Full Moon. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. country. I'm Keith Hubbard and this is Star Talk. The full moon that will occur on Wednesday is a supermoon. The full moon coincides with the moon's closest approach to Earth. The moon orbits Earth about once every 28 days. This means that about once a month the moon reaches its closest point to Earth. The term to describe the closest full moon of the year is the perigree moon. A perigree moon will occur every 13 months and 18 days, which is 14 lunar cycles. The moon's orbit around Earth is not a perfect circle. Rather, it is shaped like a football. As a result, the moon's distance from Earth varies by 31,000 miles as it traces its orbit through space. The supermoon of July will also occur on the date of the moon's closest approach to Earth for the year. As a result, July's supermoon will be a perigree moon. The moon will be 222,000 miles away on Wednesday. Contrast that with the moon's average distance from Earth of 239,000 miles away. When viewing the supermoon, it will appear bigger and brighter than usual. Even though the moon is considerably closer to Earth during a supermoon, the difference in size is difficult to see with the naked eye. The supermoon will be 30% brighter and 14% larger than normal. If you are afforded clear skies Wednesday night, venture out to gaze at the spectacle that is the supermoon. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. For WJFF and Farm and Country, this is Christine San Jose. Birthdays. So now, make a wish, take a deep breath, let's blow out the candles. 
whoosh for a contemporary poem about the moon. Here's Mort Malkin of the Milanville Poets Unlimited, and Mort tells us, early in Sumerian times, the moon god, Swen, or Sin, was a major deity. Centuries on, a prince's poet noted that the moon was a maiden whose cycles were like her own. Twenty-eight days. The moon was a goddess and would ever be so, more certain with each millennium and each poet. Well, the children, of course, have something to say about the moonlight. Shared with us by Highlights for Children, here's Alison from New Jersey. Moonlight. At night I am awakened by the sweet sound of the owl's hoot. I see moonlight and it glows like diamonds on my face. The moon tells me her secret. She says there is nothing sweeter than the night. How about surely some of the most beautiful words ever written about the moon, or about anything else for that matter? Think of your favorite place, your favorite person, your favorite music, and you will be with Lorenzo, who has just escaped with Jessica. This is from Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. How sweet the moonlight sleeps upon this bank. Here will we sit and let the sounds of music creep in our ears. Soft stillness and the night become the touches of sweet harmony. Sit, Jessica. Look how the floor of heaven is thick inlaid with patterns of bright gold. There's not the smallest orb which thou beholdest, but in his motion like an angel sings, still choiring to the young-eyed cherubims. Such harmony is in immortal souls, but whilst this muddy vesture of decay doth grossly close it in, we cannot hear it. He is wishing you lots of lovely nights along the poet's row. This has been Christine San Jose for Farm and Country along the Poet's Row. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. This morning I'm speaking with Marty Borco who has led many hikes in the Bashakel Wildlife Reserve. Marty's going to tell us what to look for when we go hiking in wetlands like the Bashakel. Marty, you seem to have a lot of hikes near waterways and swamps and marshes. What's the difference between the different kinds of wetlands? What do you see in those different wetlands? Yeah, the difference by definition between a swamp and a marsh is a swamp is a wetland that has lots of trees. Usually the marshes in New York State are mostly red maple swamps that you would have, and marshes are more open water. They have what we call emergent vegetation. 
So if we take the Bashakil as the example, then the Bashakil has the dominant emergent is known as Arrow Aram. So if someone is coming over the mountain on Route 17, then they look to the south, to the Bashakil in June, all they see is like a green meadow. And actually that green meadow is an emergent plant that's rooted in below the water level, comes up and penetrates the surface of the water and stands above the water level as a nice green plant. And that's what people see and they think it's sort of a big green meadow, but it's actually a wetland, a major wetland. The secondary plant that would be out there is called pickerel weed, but pickerel weed is much less common. There is a shrub that grows in the marsh. On occasion, you'll see a little bushy plant. That bushy plant is buttonbush. Buttonbush has little rounded flowers. It's a ball of florets that is white, and that woody plant is standing different spots in the center of the marsh. And the Bashkill Marsh has a nice meandering main channel, and a lot of people, of course, canoe and kayak through that main channel throughout the summer, spring, and fall. It's a nice resource. It seems to me that I used to see a lot more cattail than we see in our marshes now. Is that just my imagination? Well, we never really had much here in the Bashak Hill in the way of cattails, which brings us to another plant, not only the cattails, but a plant that's known as Phragmites. Phragmites is discussed quite a bit. A lot of people think that Phragmites is an exotic plant that was introduced from Europe, and a lot of people think that Phragmites was always here and it's not something that was introduced. But Phragmites does tend to push cattails out of their habitat, competes with the cattails seemingly in many places. And the cattail is a better plant in the sense that it's, it's more attractive to muskrats, more attractive to beavers, the beaver habitat, than is Phragmites. But Phragmites is grass, actually they're both interesting in that sense. But Phragmites is a beautiful grass. They get to be eight feet tall with their fruiting structures up on top. And I love to walk out and watch the tree swallows sitting on the breeze blowing the Phragmites and the swallows are bending back and forth with the Phragmites. But the cattails are a very important uh, food resource. We have two different species, actually, of cattails. We have the narrow-leafed and the broad-leafed cattail. Mostly the broad-leaf is what we find, but occasionally interspersed with them, there will be a narrow-leaf cattail. And not much difference. There's a little bit of spacing between the flowering parts, the male flowering part on top and the female flowering part on the bottom. In the case of the broad-leaf, they're adjacent to one another. And in the case of the narrow-leaf, there's a space between the two flower groups but they're both good plants for wildlife. What about the purple loosestrife? That's all over the place, too. Yeah, the purple loosestrife was a major problem in wetlands. Is they found two beetles, based on research at Cornell University and other universities, one beetle that would chew the leaf and stem of uh, purple loosestrife, and another beetle that would eat the roots of purple loosestrife. And the state had a big program of introducing these beetles into wetland areas to re reduce the populations of purple loosestrife. So the purple loosestrife population was down quite a bit. It seems to be coming back a little more now. So I don't know if the plants are acclimating to the beetle's destruction, but there's a lot less of it now than there was 15 years ago. You mentioned swallows and beavers, I think. What other animals are you going to see as you walk through the Bashakil? 
Well, if you're lucky, you never know what you're going to see. But I'll tell you one thing for sure. You're not going to see him if you sit at home. You've got to get out in the wild and walk the trails. I think about the wildwood trails that I walk every morning. I've had the luxury of seeing one day a bobcat walk across a log. I saw a couple ducks that were swimming in a, in a little wet pocket, and the geese came out and kind of made them change their course. And behind both of them on the shore, walking behind both of them, looking at them, and then walking away knowing that nothing could happen, was a beautiful coyote, just gorgeous pelt with a big fluffy tail. It was wonderful. And then just this week, just a couple of days ago, walking across the dam, I watched an otter be swimming up and down. He would bob his head and look at me and was watching him with the binoculars and he would look back and then dive underwater and then come back up, poke his head up, look at me. And it was just great to see an otter. So I've seen mink, otter, muskrats. That's the beauty of getting out in the wild, the, the chance to see these things in a natural situation. Muskrats are wonderful to look at. They're so playful. Yeah, muskrats are a rodent by definition. Their population is not threatened whatsoever. <laughs> muskrats do very well. dangerous thing for us, I guess, at Wildwood is, and for anybody that has a dam, natural dam, is that they burrow into the bank, and if you're not careful, they can bore through the bank, and then you can have a, a, <laughs> a loss of your dam. But that's really not a threat. Our dam is pretty wide, and I'm not panicked about it. Yeah, we had muskrats make a hole in our uh, the dam. Our pond started to empty, but then the beavers came and they took care of it. Yeah, we had uh, <laughs> we had that problem until we had the big flood that took out Binghamton, Elmira, not Elmira, but the last Binghamton flood in 2005. That when that flood came through, it was like five feet above the whole dam, and it washed out the whatever the beavers had. And fortunately for us, since we're a small not-for-profit group is the Tiago County Soil and Water came in, and they got the Fish and Wildlife Service to reconstruct the dam for us, which was a major expense, around $19,000. So we now have our dam back. And then the beavers, we don't have much beaver food. Uh, the best food for beaver would be aspen, poplar. The second best, I guess, would be birches. And we have some birch, but we didn't have much poplar because the beavers that were there earlier had taken it out. The beavers have been chewing on a lot of the honeysuckle, I would have to go out there every morning and unplug the outlet pipe. And I got tired of doing that, so I called the trapper in to try to get rid of them. And this last spring, he just there's one beaver that seems to outsmart him. It just won't get caught. <laughs> it's a perpetual problem to work with the beavers, to try to control them. But they're great animals, too. Yeah, there's uh, somebody locally who builds special kinds of mesh that allow the water to flow but keep the beavers out. Our trapper uh, went ahead and staked out in front of the outlet, put some stakes in the pond, and that seems to have pushed the beavers away from the outlet itself back. So while vegetation is accumulating around those stakes, the beaver has not come back. So I've been relieved of that extra duty of pulling uh, sticks out from the outlet pipe. You've talked mostly about mammals and birds. What other kinds of animals are you likely to see in the Bashakil? Well, in the Bashakil, certainly if you go fishing, the Bashakil is a warm water fishery for the most part, although the headwaters of the Bashakil is good trout stream because you have Gomorrah Brook that comes down and you have Wilsey Valley Brook that comes down. Those are both cold water brooks. There are headwaters there. They have lots of hemlocks still in those areas, so that's good cold water. So there's good trout fishing in the upper end. In the lower end, in most of the Bashak Hill, you have smallmouth bass in there, 
and you have lots of sunfish. One of the fishes that they found, uh, what was it now, uh, years ago, can't think of the name of a very unusual fish. I saw it on the fish signs, as a matter of fact, that the state put up warning people about this new snake fish, that do not confuse this new snake fish. Pickerel is another one, warm water fishery. So the, the main ones would be sunfish, pickerel, and bass. And that's what most of the fishermen down in the Bashkiller are going for, one of those. Also a lot of catfish down in the Bashkiller if you want to come out night fishing, which you will see people coming down at night and uh, dropping their lines in there after catfish primarily. Certainly lots of carp are in there. I did in the 1970s, I think, teach a course on the vertebrates of the Bashakil to try to, again, one thing to get attention to the major resource that we wanted to protect, the Bashakil Marsh. You didn't say anything about frogs and snakes. Those are vertebrates. Yeah, they are. We have, uh, for frogs, we have uh, peepers, the spring peeper. We have wood frogs. We have green frogs. We have bullfrogs. We have American toads. The Bashakil is really known for its peepers and its wood frogs. When I was teaching, I would always take students out to show them the best breeding holes for wood frogs and where they ended up. When the wood frogs come out to breed, they come out early in the spring when snow is still on the ground in the end of March. And when they form, they get in large numbers, and they sound like ducks when they're calling. Quack, quack, quack. Yeah. Uh, get in large aggregations. They go through what's called a plexus, where the male frog grasps the female frog, squeezes her abdomen to squeeze the eggs out. And as he's squeezing the eggs out of the female, he drops his sperm on top of the eggs so that the fertilization takes place in the water. There are good breeding pools of those in the Bashik Hill. And the same pool is often used by Jefferson salamander, but mainly spotted salamanders. The spotted salamander and the Jeffersons, for that matter, they're both called ambistomids or mold salamanders. They're both large salamanders as much as six inches long. And the spotted is black or bluish black with yellow, bright yellow spots on it. They breed in the same pools as the wood frogs and the peepers, for that matter. Again, I don't know what's happened to that resource since I've left. The frustrating thing to me about it is that the frogs and the salamanders would be coming off the mountain, off of the gunks, crossing South Road, and then going to these breeding pools, and then retreating after having satisfied the mating moments, would then go back across South Road, back up into the gunks. And with the development of all the houses, both north and south of South Road, the traffic is now tremendous, and uh, the number of houses that have gone in since I worked on the Bashkill, the 72-73s, it's frustrating personally to, to know that so many more of those salamanders and frogs are not making it across the road. Are we going to see flowers if we're walking in the Bashkill? Well, if you walk in the Bashkill, we could see flowers. There are certainly flowers of poison ivy, flowers of Virginia creeper. Bee balm is, is a good flower that we could see there. We have crowfoot, we have ragwort, uh, we have uh, golden alexanders. Right now we have mayapples that are coming in to just beginning to form and uh, they soon will be in flower. So in June we should be able to see all of those. Um, what about mushrooms? Mushrooms are for the most part saprophytes. A few perhaps would be parasitic, but most feed on dead or rotten wood. As a matter of fact, you could probably find a Facebook group that deals with fungus. There are people also who commercially try to get the fungal spores, inject them into logs, 
and then wait for the logs to reach a certain point of rotting and for the fungus to produce a fruiting crop that they can sell commercially. But I think the most successful people of that type are ones that really have walk-in refrigerators, walk-in temperature, humidity control, which is what they do to grow a lot of the commercial fungus that you see in the markets today. There are lots of different fungal species. Birch conchs would be the one that comes to mind that's just out there. And another G major genus would be foamies of uh, fungus, bracket fungus. The artist conch, which is a foamies, is another one. Those are feeding usually on dead, decaying wood, not on fresh, live wood. And what about ferns? There must be a lot of ferns. Yeah, the ferns, if you go on South Road, uh, South Road has a lot of hay-scented fern and a lot of uh, interrupted fern. The interrupted fern is in the same genus as the cinnamon fern. The cinnamon fern looks very similar, but it grows in wetlands more commonly, along with royal fern. So we have royal fern and cinnamon fern in the very wet areas down along the Bashkill, along the railroad track where people walk. And as you walk South Road, again, you would have lots of hay-scented fern and interrupted fern. There are many other species. There's a limestone outcrop in the Bashak Hill. I don't know how many know of Surprise Cave. There is a major cave that serves as a hotel for bats that the state has acquired and has a steel gate over the entrance to the cave so you can't get in anymore, but they wanted to save the Indiana bat, which was there. And up on that ridge, it's limestone, and there's a special fern called the walking fern that grows on only on limestone. So if you wanted to see walking fern, you'd have to go up on those ledges. We also have another one that does like it limey, that's called the maidenhair fern, that also has good populations in different places in the Bashak Hill. And then there are places that have bracken fern. We have lots of different fern species in the Bashak Hill. The common one, I walked the local trail at this facility that we are at at this moment. And of course, they have Christmas fern, which is very common. And they have marginal wood fern, which is also very common. The nice thing about Christmas fern and marginal wood fern is that these two ferns are what we call evergreens. They stay green all winter long. And then they kind of fade away now and new growth comes up. Another major fern would be marsh fern, which is also down in the marsh. And the marsh fern has a separate reproductive stalk. So it has a vegetative leaf and then it has a reproductive leaf that are separate. All the other ferns that I mentioned have the reproductive structures called sori, somewhere on the bottom of the leaf. But the sensitive fern has a separate leaf or frond that has all the reproductive spores in it and it loves wet areas. You can always evaluate a wet area when you see sensitive fern. It's called sensitive fern because it usually dies back with the first or earliest frost. It just simply goes quickly, does not survive. So now you know what you'll see if you put on your boots for a walk in the marsh. Our hike leader today has been Marty Borco, who has led many hikes in the Bashakil. Tell me what else you'd like to know about living up here in the country. Send me an email, stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country.
We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, naturalist Marty Borco from the Bashakil Environmental Center. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farming Country on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org American Jerusalem Radio Catskill and the Liberty Museum and Arts Center celebrate our station's new home in Liberty with a special concert by singer-songwriter Rod McDonald. Join us for a neighborly night of music, 7 p.m. Friday, July 15th. Tickets $10 at the door. Proceeds benefit Radio Catskill. That's Rod McDonald, July 15th. Info at libertymuseum.com and wjffradio.org. On this week's On the Media, obesity is cited as a risk factor for COVID-19, but maybe some of that risk lies outside those patients' bodies. People with obesity are treated differently by the medical profession. Plus, how folks with a little extra adiposity were knocked down a few pegs on the hierarchy of humanity. On the next On the Media from WNYC. Good morning. Welcome to Catskill Character. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg. 